we'll begin with um, our sitting. And I, I'm going to um, make some comments and some reflections during our, our sitting time, if you don't mind. Um, we maybe we'll sit for a little, little longer than just five or ten minutes. And at the end of the sitting, I will uh, share um, a little dedication to practice that is, is different than we often will chant uh, the verse of the robe after. Um, so if you don't mind my clumsiness of having to share the screen, to, um, we'll, we'll go back and forth a little bit. Uh, but let's, let's begin with our, our shared uh, sitting. We are drawn to practice by so many different different threads. Different energies and different pathways, but no matter what flavor or fragrance uh, of healing, I would say, that we're drawn to, ultimately, we're going to be asked to enter this healing path through the doorway of grief. Through the doorway of grief. And it's maybe a doorway, a threshold over which we move again and again. And on the other side, it's, it's alive, but shaky and tender, heartbreaking and life-giving. 
whether we gently enter practice with curiosity and or we're forced into it because of some difficulty or just follow someone along when we inevitably meet grief which is part of life as it is it's so central we are in a relationship with grief And it's a relationship that we will continue to walk with as long as we are breathing. It's not really a temporary partner. Sometimes it's personal grief, but also community grief. all of it, living in this swirl of the stars and the earth and all the creatures around us. Everything miraculous and impermanent. One of the invitations that grief brings as we meet it on the practice path is that we find a way to be a midwife in a way for the ongoing reorganization of our body and our mind, our heart, our soul, if you will, but equally of our community and homes and our families as grief penetrates them all. And it may be most importantly to bear witness that we cultivate the ability and the willingness both to bear witness to the devastation of loss as well as the birth of what's new in that wide gap, which inevitably brings moments of bitter longing, the experience of being uh, shattered or broken open, everything crumbling again and again in the face of what comes next and next and next, You may have noticed that things don't turn out the way we thought they would. Everything is too alive, too magical, too inconceivable, too frightening, too complicated, too majestic, too terrible.
And there are moments in the face of unimaginable loss, we gather the ashes, the old life, we can just bear considering a new life if, if we do find the courage to continue. It's important for us to remember that this not turning out the way we thought is not some evidence of a great cosmic mistake or that we failed or done life wrong somehow or being punished. It's not evidence of punishment or retribution only that life is constantly unfolding loss and love loss and love loss and love cycling through the process of unending death and rebirth it's, it's the way it is to fall to the ground because we can't bear the weight to stand back up again to fail to be lost to be found again realizing that love is moving through all of these experiences as shape shifts and spirals through the great sky and the deep ocean and the scorched land love permeating everything and making its way through our lives as our fragile amazing lives if we are vulnerable to it, if we become porous because of it, the grief and the love, the anguish and despair, the hope and the courage, the fear and the anger, disappointment, 
so many flavors and shapes and fragrances and reflections of one thing taking so many forms and showing us so many faces. to choose again and again to remain close and to help each other when it doesn't seem as if there's any uh, balm, no solution, nothing that will ever make it better, ever, never. To know this and still continue is the heart of constancy of practice. The ultimate fierce and tender presence that's needed, ultimately fueling action and mutual caretaking. to be willing to turn toward what's been shattered and destroyed, to grieve consciously and communally, and to collect the shards and the fragments of our souls and our lives, of tolerate the dissolution of it all, even in its unspeakable horror, and then to stand together in awe as the pieces reassemble. This is the embodiment of mutual love. This is aloha.
I'll offer the dedication just on my own, if that's okay. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. May the merit and virtue of this group, along with our everyday practices, extend to all beings everywhere. May all be relieved of suffering, free from fear, longing, aversion, and ignorance. And may the way of awakening go on endlessly. You know, every week <clears throat> I'm prompted uh, to reflect on the Dharma for you, for us, by something that <clears throat> I've encountered, <clears throat> whether it's emerging from inside me or, or something that arrives, as I've <laughs> said many times. <clears throat> because I really want the Dharma to be grounded in our lives something accessible, ordinary, real, and connected to experience and, and embodiment. I was in a meeting uh, yesterday with a number of uh, Zen teachers, and we were reflecting on aging as teachers. And one of the um, <clears throat> very, very esteemed and older <laughs> teachers who I look up to quite a bit, <clears throat> pardon me, because we'd all uh, checked in and talked about our ailments and infirmments and challenges and things. <clears throat> he said, so most of us have spent a good part of our life dedicated to this practice, uh, many, many decades. So what does it come down to? He said, help us. When it's time for the surgery or when we get the diagnosis or when our partner dies. <clears throat> But that's really always the question, isn't it? You know, and it was interesting to hear my buddies say what they thought. It wasn't anything different than what you say and what you ask. And as everyone is certainly aware, and you could hear it threaded into the meditation that the, the tragedy that's unfolded this past week in our neighboring island of Maui, it was so close. Uh, close to us geographically, but close to many others because we, everybody watches this thing unfold on the news. And, and you can feel the emotional anguish. It's almost like you can feel the heat. <clears throat> and I can tell you, I've spent a very good bit of time this week responding to a flood of emails and texts all saying the same thing. Are you okay? Are you safe? And again and again, I've written back some version of, thank you for your kindness and care. We were impacted by the high winds, but were spared the fires on our little island. And, but we are swept up in the communal trauma that's so present here in Hawaii. And many of you were those people <laughs> reaching out to me so kindly. And it's interesting in these times of, of grief or difficulty that we need symbols for things. And there is a, a symbol around which we don't know what to think and there's not anything to do sometimes or we don't know what we can do or we feel limited. <clears throat> but one of the great symbols is, as many of you know, the great banyan tree in Lahaina, <clears throat> the very heart of the town. Um, 
I'll share something if you don't mind. Not because I want to give you a history of uh, Hawaii or the particular island, but there's, you know, we, we know that our story in Buddhism started under a tree. And you can see this great tree. I, I put some information here, just uh, the tree was eight feet tall when it was planted in 1873. Um, it was a gift to commemorate some, some things and it was planted a quarter century before the Hawaiian Islands became a US territory. And seven decades after King Kamehameha declared that Lahaina was the capital of his kingdom you know, later moved to Honolulu. But. And it's said that uh, this, the tree is the heart of this community. It's 60 feet tall and covers almost an acre. Uh, that's the old courthouse uh, next to the shore. And it, underneath, you can't hardly believe <laughs> what it's like. So for 150 years, this tree became a place where people could, could sit and enjoy different festivals and protection from, uh, in Hawaii, Lele, which is the relentless sun, <laughs> you'd be protected from that. And I love this picture of the nighttime when there's a festival there. Is it hard for you to look at? I'm taking a lot of time today because I think our Maybe my, our most important thing is just simply to bear witness. Deep suffering like this calls forward what we call bodhicitta, that heartfelt desire that people be free from suffering and to be awakened to their liberated nature. And we talk about absolute bodhicitta, mean like the, sort of the big universal encompassing, all encompassing love that flows at the heart of all life. But relative bodhicitta is when we have to roll up our sleeves and love someone. It's, it's interesting because I haven't felt the, this much impact of the grief. Um, Speaking it does something different than watching it. And a huge support has come from this tiny island across the channel. When we meet suffering and can feel the rise of compassion, it needs a channel <laughs> to move through us to express our care and compassion. And there's a statement that I'm, I know a lot of you have read in, in Norman Fisher's book on training and compassion, uh, because it, to me, it's like a summary of the Bodhisattva vow. If you want to understand suffering, learn to love. And if you want to understand love, you're going to have to turn towards suffering. And in talking 
to some those teachers yesterday. They're saying we all know about impermanence. That's not hard. Everybody understands impermanence. There's no need to burn down a town for us to understand the nature of impermanence. We all experience it. Some of us harshly and more gently every day, but that that's easy. And we understand that everybody suffers. It's, we do. There's you don't have to lose everything including the lives of your loved ones, to understand the nature of suffering. But sometimes we do need to focus for our grief and our hope, so... So we take a symbol that allows us to... It's almost like a ceremony. So people are at... Are the roots alive? The tree was... scorched and charred and in the inferno, are the roots alive? Will the tree return? If it can survive, maybe maybe we can survive. What happened to our shelter? Can I make it without that shelter? <clears throat> On Saturday, our wonderful Democratic Senator Maisie Hirono uh, visited the tree and, and with the state arborist. Um, and she said they were doing everything they could to help save the banyan tree. Uh, while, of course, all around everyone, all the islands, and much more doing everything to save uh, the people. So it's deeply damaged, but it's still standing. And after speaking with the arborist working on the tree, she said she felt optimistic that it would bloom again and be a symbol of, of hope. It's already serving that purpose. I, I found one account, I've, it was interesting. There was a local business owner, a restaurant owner, I don't know who it is, Javier Barberi, who, because he was a business owner, was allowed back into town on Front Street the day after the fire took everything away. And he said the only way he was able to find his business in the city's remains was by looking at the tree. He said, I drove to Front Street. I was only able to find our restaurant based off of the banyan tree. I'd use the banyan tree as a reference because everything was decimated as far as the eye could see. And the banyan tree is one of those iconic things. It's a landmark. And to me, it shows strength of the town, and you know, this incredible resilient tree. And I hope to God we see green come out of it one day. So it's just a tree. But there's a story that you've, a lot of you heard me tell about when Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, as a young monk, went to see <clears throat> Dilgo Kensei, who was one of his teachers, when they were still in Tibet. And the young Trungpa went to the, the temple where Dilgo Kensei was. He was a, a, a great Dzogchen teacher. And <clears throat> asked his attendant if he could meet with the master. And he said, sure, he's in the garden sitting. Just go in there and sit quietly with him. So he went in. And they sat for a long time, kind of like we did earlier, without saying much. And then, kind of with a smile on his face, the old man pointed to this huge tree that was in the garden and turned to Trungpa and laughing said, they call that a tree. As if you could reduce it and just name it. They call that a banyan tree. But are the roots alive? And for us, how do we keep the roots of our practice alive in the fire of everyday challenges and chaos? Do we, do they go deep enough? Are they deep already? Do we, can we realize it? Will the tree return? Can we get back up and keep going when terrible things happen? Will we return? If it can survive, maybe we can survive. 
often, you know, without noticing it, we give each other such confidence to continue. Just sitting next to someone in a retreat or seeing the people on the screen helps us continue to sit even when it'd be much easier to give up. Where will we find shelter if the big tree can't make it? When something or someone really important is lost, we're confronted with our own vulnerability. Where will I find shelter if our partner, our best friend, our child, our beloved pet, our teacher dies? If they can die, so can I. And can I live? It's a lot to balance this um, helplessness and the necessity to act at the same time. And we, we practice constantly in, in this way. It seems strange that just sitting silently would be a practice for this. But it isn't just sitting around to sit upright and attend to your posture and attend to your breath to not react as everything moves through you and to know that then you have to get up and we walk together and we sit back down and we hold each other up and we get up and we walk together and we sit back down or we clean or we cook ordinary activities but it's training for this. And sometimes we need a tree to sit under. And sometimes we need something as a symbol of the hope that's hard to hold on to, uh, to uh, kindle our willingness to continue together and to provide the shade. To continue the spirit of uh, aloha. If there are things that move deeply, that want to be met, um, as, as we always do, you can come forward. Um, on days like this, like when we met on election day and I would s sort of discourage us from just telling stories, the kind of, isn't it awful kind of thing. What, what's the, what's the threshold that it brings you to? What's, what's um, precious and real and vulnerable and difficult that wants to be met here? So, That's the invitation. And Nilda. So holding you is the first thing. And uh, thank you. And uh, holding all of those. You pronounce it Lahaina? Lahaina? I've always pronounced it Lahaina, right? Yeah, Lahaina, that's right. Yeah. It happens to be one of my three favorite places in the world, and I've seen lots of places, but it's my heart home. Um, it is where my favorite of 31 cousins and her family <laughs> And my son and I travel each year to that very banyan tree. Um, 
to create memories and grow love. Um, and I imagine that if I love Lahaina that much, that those who have lived there for so long and lost so much love it even more. So my heart's with them. I listened to your words and what came up. And I'd like to say I have an answer and I probably could come up with them. Is what do we do if the tree doesn't come back? And I, I know that everyone here has gone through some form of grief, some more profound than others. The loss of a child, the loss of a marriage, the loss of a home, the loss of a limb, lots of losses. Life's full of comings and goings, right? <laughs> Gains and losses. Um, but the answer I came up with about with our practice, through our practice, and maybe you can be help me with more, a, a broader Dharma gate. I guess that's this, and, and it's so present because it's so current. Uh, my daughter passed away around this time, about the same time Darcy's daughter passed away. Um, and that was devastating. And yet, because of this practice, because of those supported me in the Sangha through that, in silence sometimes, just in holding sometimes, um, because there are no words sometimes. What I realized was the beauty of grief, how rich it is and how much love it holds. And rather than focus on the pain of grief, I learned to hold the beauty of grief. And so I guess where I need guidance is sometimes I do get lost in the beauty of uh, hmm, connected to the beauty of the grief by remembering the story. And I don't want to waste precious time. And my son my remaining, my tummy child, I, Mimi was adopted. So my son is my tummy child. She was my heart child. They're both my heart child, right? He's coming and I don't want to waste a moment getting lost in the story of grief, the, the shadow side of it. That's my question. How? Yeah, the, what practice will invite us to ultimately is to not turn away from any of it and include all of it. Mm -hmm. Even when it's the dark stuff, we don't know if that's the beauty. We say beauty, we say dark, we don't really know. Meet it all. Make this large enough space where everything can be held and uh, without privileging or disparaging any part of it. Uh, that's the fierceness mm -hmm. that takes us... Uh, because uh, like like we were having a discussion yesterday at the end at the end what's does this practice help us at all you know does it really do anything and if anything it helps us meet life as it is mm -hmm. some of you probably saw that I just sent out a connection to a podcast that I'd done recently and at the end of that long thing the interviewer said is if there's anything that you could offer people as a finish like what would you want them to know? And I said that other people feel like you. Thank you, Flynn. And because of you, I'm still here. <laughs> because of you, I'm still here. <laughs> a breath at a time. Thank you. Yeah. Trudy. You're just coming from a funeral, too. I am. It was um, everything funerals are. It's sweet and beautiful and sad and all those things. Um, and there was something that kind of really powerful that had happened for me before the funeral, which was um, Margaret 
had been invited. Um, she'd ordered a willow coffin, and um, she was invited. The, there was the opportunity to go and weave it. Oh. So she, she went to the workplace where they were making it and um, with the beautiful, dexterous help of what sounds like a sort of wonderful, empathic guy who did the technically bits, she spent the day weaving the coffin. Of her partner. Yeah. And... Um, And there was, you know, it was a, she describes it herself, you know, incredibly beautifully and movingly and profound experience. And um, and somebody said um, on the day, um, all that work, you know, for nothing, because it's going to go and be burned. And, um, and I just thought, but it's no different than life, all this work. You know, all this work that we can put in with everything that we're putting in. And um, it all goes the same way. Um, so I'd, I'd written a poem, uh, my response, um, and I'd, I'd really like to read it because it feels like um, the bearing witness is the bearing witness to the futility and the beauty. We weave a life and then we throw it on the fire. Mm -hmm. So it's called, it's got a title. I don't usually have a title. Um, woven Lives. My friend wove a willow coffin for her beloved, strand over strand in the shared silence of workspace, smelling of life and the broad levels where the willow had lived and grown. All the many threads of their vegetable lives lived effortlessly amidst the wind and the sun and the sound of passing geese, woven with the threads of a life, lived with love and connection, disaster and grace. All of these now tangled lives will together turn to ash, as all life does, tending as it does always towards the elements that everything, everything is made of. Thank you for your walking. Thank you for everything. And for that beauty, I've been, <clears throat> I've been asked to read several of your poems this week in various situations. Can you read that one by Trudy? Um, because you seem to have a voice for us uh, as a larger sangha that's deeply appreciated. Thank you. As now, I think I heard a cult, an African culture, one of their sayings is that when a, a great being dies, it's like a library burning down. Mm. It's a particular way to say it. But it's like, yeah, we put all this effort and then it's gone. And then it's gone. And that's worth doing. Absolutely. Uh, the effort is the life. That's that's what we're here for. Not yeah. so. So we can put it on the fire. And, and celebrate. <laughs> and cry. That's right. And feel the warmth. And... So. Thank you so much. Thank I you. Thank you, Josh, this weekend, the whole community there. Mm. Thank you. And of course, as always, please send me the poem. <laughs> I'm going to be a little bit naughty. So if you're, if you look on gallery view for a second and look at everybody that you can see, if this is really mean. <laughs> so how many people would like an anthology of Trudy's poetry? Just raise your hand. Oh, okay. It looks like a number of people do. Okay. Just wanted to check. Robin, you just had a beloved loss too. A couple. 
Um, thank you for letting us bear witness with you. Of course, you've been on my mind. Um, I wanted to share that um, our son lost his best friend of 15 years. They call it a dog. They call and, that a dog. <laughs> yeah. And what I've observed is um, he's had many losses, unfortunately, in his life. But what I've observed this time, he's 26 now, just had is having huge success in his career suddenly after so much work. What I'm observing, the dog Reggie died on Saturday. Yeah. And um, the three of us um, dug a hole. Um, you know, everything's dead here. The ground is completely um and so it became sort of a mud pit. We ran the hose to get the soil loose enough. Over a couple of hours, it was over 100 degrees. And to, to just remember how necessary the physicalness of sliding in the mud, sweating, tears, snot, all of it mixed together. Finally, you know, doing some things that seem like the things and then beginning to cover the body of this incredibly beautiful animal. Um, but what I've noticed in the couple of days since then that I've seen cope is, and what brought to mind is his grief is so present and he's needing to work and kind of put it aside while he's at work. But what I notice is that his heart is so open. It's more open than I've seen it since he was a little child in terms of who he calls friends and how long he lets us hug and how free he is with his tears. And that's that's what Nelda called the beauty. It's the what I think of as grace, but it's that messy, muddy, snotty, sweaty, um, but sharing it, if he had had to do that alone, if he had to keep doing this alone, if we had to do this alone, then it, it wouldn't be possible. So, and use your body. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I know we're running out of time. Um, I guess the, the only thing I have to add to this is the a cautionary tale. Um, somebody I knew died recently, her and her son, someone I was entangled with long ago, and they were the emphasis for me to become a sober alcoholic, for which I never gave them thanks. Uh, somebody has talked to me recently about loss and how I handle loss, and I said I just talked to them. But I talked to them after the fact. And what I wished I could have talked to him before the fact. As you said, we we all we all realize that we can die. It's really we all realize we will die. Uh and so just the addition to the grief of all these people that have been lost, uh is also that cautionary tale of do it now. Yeah. Uh, it's like the verse of the Han. Don't don't waste don't waste the precious life. I, one more little tale from this week. I have an old friend, a therapist friend of mine that I've known for maybe forty years now, probably maybe more. Uh, and we kind of grew up together with John Gladfelter. Some of you know who that is. And, uh, he and his wife live in Italy now, and he's about 10 years older than me. 
And I was thinking about him a lot. Uh, and then he sent me a, out of the blue, sent an email this week and said he was thinking about us, partly spurred by the Maui thing, I think. Um, but we began to, to share some memories. And I said, you know, we have so many shared memories over all those years, but there's one that stands out uh, right now as I'm thinking. And it's that he had had a, uh, a tumor in his kidney, a kidney cancer. And he had a very successful surgery. It hadn't spread. And so he survived that. And this was 15 years ago or so, maybe longer. And a year after the surgery and the scare, we were having breakfast, for those of you in Austin, at Magnolia Cafe. What was? And he said, I feel really strange because... I've never felt more open and present and connected. The thing you're thinking about, Cope, uh, as a result of that real embodied threat to my life. And now a year out, I'm starting to lose it and I miss it. I'm starting to reassemble. Uh, but there's the heart of practice right there. Like, how do we stay open and, uh, and have the capacity to open and close, not just stay open, stay flexible, malleable, um, responsive, receiving and expressing life, because that's a that's risky business, but it's the only business. So, so I will <clears throat> um, share something here just to end. We're going to do the four practice principles as we often chant. Um, I, I did the previous, but after inquiry, let's say this together. <clears throat> uh, if I can spell, that's better. <clears throat> so we will uh, say this together. In observing silence, reflecting on the Dharma of loss and grief, by extending compassionate care to the people of Maui affected by the fires and to all those everywhere who are experiencing trauma and loss, who are gravely ill, lacking basic necessities, or suffering violence in the world in thought, word, or deed. May they be met with deep care and compassion through all of their suffering. And may they, together with all beings, realize the awakened way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. Being just this moment, compassion's way. Thank you so much, Flint, and all the leaves on the tree here that you've helped cultivate, Flint, are all sending you and everyone in Hawaii lots of lots of love, and yeah, our hearts are with you. And uh, if you'd like to offer dana to Flint and to Appamada, please go to appamada.org forward slash contribute, and you'll find a space there to to offer Dana to who you'd like it, you know, just put where you'd like it to go to. And if you'd like to continue to meet and share and add a branch to our after porch, then please do pop yourself into gallery view and I shall be with you in just a moment for a further 30 minutes. Thank you all so much. Lots of love. <laughs>